As we now turn our attention to the 10th chapter of Matthew, as we continue through our series, we're turning our attention and focus this morning to verses 34 through 39 in this surprising and shocking and somewhat drastic statement that our Lord himself gives. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have not, for I have come. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Our Father, tune our hearts and our minds and give us the faith to receive this message that Christ is exhorting his disciples and subsequently all of his disciples and those who are true followers. We confess this is a hard saying, but we also confess that you are the God of the impossible that does far beyond what we can imagine or think. And so we ask that the Spirit of God would open up the scriptures to us, that we can hear and see and believe the truth, and the truth will set us free. And so we ask that the Spirit would apply these truths in the multiple and various ways that we all need this morning particularly applied to our lives individually and to this church corporately. We pray this for the sake of the gospel and for the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the theme of Matthew's gospel, the very first gospel that we have, in fact, the very first book coming out of the Old Testament and as we march into the New Testament, seeing now the introduction of Jesus Christ, now Matthew's gospel and his entire theme is bringing in of the messianic kingdom with the coming of the messianic king. And that Messiah, that messianic king, is Jesus. That's, his, that's the whole thing that Matthew is getting at and driving at. Jesus came to occupy an office over all of creation as its rightful Lord and King. Everything right that Matthew writes supports that theme. The order in which he organizes the material, the focus of his writing, the emphasis he gives, the illustrations and the vignettes of Jesus' life is all about making that case that Jesus is the Messianic King. He's bringing in his kingdom. His kingdom has come near. In arguing that Jesus is the messianic king, he gives an idea to all those who will accept him as such and trust him and follow him what the outcome will be for them. Now what the Old Testament reveals about the messianic king it tells us about the ministry of what the Messiah will be like. The Messiah has been appointed by God to set everything 
that is wrong in this fallen, broken world and to set it right in every detail. That's what the Messiah is coming to do. That's what the Old Testament prophets were prophesying. Now hear me on this. He doesn't come to merely save yours and my individual souls. That's a part of it. But it's much bigger than that. He comes to put back in order all of creation. Every single thing that's broken will be made right. And many, many of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament fill out what that's going to mean and what it's going to look like. And every area and every aspect of the earth will be adjusted by this messianic king. Government will be restored. Economics are going to be different. The value that people give in life, the relationships we have, earth's weather, weather patterns will be adjusted. Geography will be changed. The animal kingdom will be altered and readjusted. The spiritual realm that we see not will be radically changed. There is not a single area or realm on this earth that will not be adjusted by the Messiah when He comes is what the prophets were saying as he conquers realm by realm what is wrong because it has been an utter rebellion to the God that created it and this is the mission and the ministry of the Messiah it's no surprise that we see Matthew pointing out to us Jesus calming the wind and the waves casting out demons healing the sick raising the 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 dead, causing blind men to see and dumb men to speak. Every realm is addressed. And he's given little vignettes to show that this Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's theme is this Jesus is the Messiah that is coming to bring in his messianic kingdom, and there's not a single realm upon this earth that will be unaffected. And as we come to the big picture of that messianic ministry, our focus needs to be adjusted here to see the correct perspective on these verses that are before us. In this passage, Jesus is instructing his disciples about persecution that will come upon them if they follow him as the Messiah. And as we mentioned, this is one of the most extensive passages in all of Scripture about persecution. And nestled here in the context is one of the most difficult, heart-wrenching forms of persecution that we will ever have to face, and that is when family members, loved ones, Turn away from us when we are sold out for Jesus Christ. It's one of the greatest challenges we face. So see, you, you have known, many of you have known this kind of persecution. And while it's one of the greatest challenges we face, it's also one of the greatest tests of our true discipleship. This familial test of one's discipleship has many variations, many of which can be very subtle, but it is truly a test of the worthiness to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
We have been living in a land that has been filled and still is very gospel rich in this land, thankfully. But it is also a land and an environment that has had many, 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 many versions of the gospel presented. We've grown up for several generations in evangelical contexts where the gospel has been presented as cheap grace or easy believism. That you can accept Jesus as your Savior and you do not have to yield to Him as Lord. That is a false gospel. So much so have we been influenced by the hearing of those things, even subtly and unwittingly so, that when we come to texts like these and others that reveal true discipleship of Christ over those who merely think themselves to be a disciple, the truth sometimes can be hard to digest. The real notion of discipleship involves a deeper level of commitment in a relationship with Jesus Christ than we often give credit for, and sometimes we do not even embrace. And that brings into question worthiness. Are you worthy? Are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? We have been dumbed down into what it actually means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. We've compromised with this truth. And I'm afraid that some will pay the ultimate price in eternity for believing lies and perversions of the gospel. Before us is a sobering text. And this morning I simply want to extract from the text what Jesus himself is saying. This morning I want to talk about Jesus bringing division and not peace on earth to establish his messianic kingdom here. What? You say. <laughs> That's exactly what he says. First of all, notice of all what the Lord himself reveals in the context of the instruction regarding persecution. That's the context here. He intends to bring division among people. That's what he says in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Do not think that Jesus came to be, bring peace. That's what he said. That's a misnomer. That is a misnomer. The sword is a weapon of division. It is that which splits. It divides. Particularly people. And this is a very dramatic statement. And one perhaps that flags many sirens that goes off in the back of your heads with other kind of Bible verses that that say, well, well, did not at the scene of his nativity the angels say, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And a whole host of other verses that we tend to, to, to think about in the back of our mind when we come here, and we easily dismiss this one and we skip right over it. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He says, I came deliberately not to bring peace but a sword. See, that peace that the angels had mentioned does not come without war, without a battle, 
Think about the entire Old Testament backdrop and all those battles and all those wars for the people of God, which ultimately reveals the messianic battle in the spiritual realm for his people. You never are saved apart from a bloody battle. And Jesus had to pay a high price in battle for your soul. All those physical illustrations that we read about in the Old Testament is what it takes for the Messiah to gain the victory, to bring peace. He will bring peace. But he must wield a sword in order to do it. Jesus reveals in verse 34 that's one of his objectives for the reason he came. I came in order to, for this purpose, for this reason. It's one of the very messianic purposes that he's stating here. And let me frame it this way, if you will forgive the lack of theological precision, but I think perhaps maybe we can understand it if I say it this way. Bringing division among men isn't Jesus' wish, but it is his intention. And while that may sound like a contradiction... You have to take into account the nature of the world into which he came. It would not have been his wish that he wouldn't be received. You can hear him crying out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you as children together and hens, as hens gather the chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You hear the heart of a wish. But being God, Jesus knew that he would not be received. He knew his true disciples would not be received in this hostile, fallen world that stands against him and his father, stands against the very creator that created it. Now this creator comes into this world, and he knew that this world would be against him. And he came with a very specific intention of dividing people one from another in order to advance his kingdom. So why is it necessary to divide people? Because he came to correct every single wrong in the world. And he begins that correction in the very hearts of people. If hearts were given over to him as the rightful governor of their lives, there would be no threat of a sword or division. But the scripture reveals that we're all like sheep who go astray, kind of doing everything our own way. By nature, we do not allow God to be God. By nature, we do not trust God at his word. By nature, we are set against him. By nature, we hate him. By nature, we are at enmity with him. By nature, we despise his law. By nature, we are not good. A very sinful nature in which we were all born is set against God from the very beginning. And that being the case, when Jesus comes to win the wholehearted allegiance of his people, those people will encounter opposition from some of their closest loved ones unless those close loved ones are also wholeheartedly given their allegiance to Christ. 
Consider what he says about setting a man against a man in verses 35 and 36. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. And that's hard. It's difficult. A son being set against his father, and a father being set against his son. Whenever you have someone who gives serious consideration to the yielding of his entire life to that chosen Messiah. And that person is embedded in a family that is not prepared to do the same. The Lord's intention would be to cut that disciple off from those who would dissuade him and discourage him from his wholehearted allegiance to the Messiah. And that is the wielding of the sword he's talking about. He must divide us from them. You think about those implications. It's a very sobering thing to think that a boy's dad would take him to hell with him. It's a sobering thing That a girl's mother may softly and affectionately pull her right down into the pit. And that's precisely what our Lord had in mind when he came to set family members against another family member with the gospel kingdom. If a father would have his way, that boy perhaps may be a Christian but in name or in word only. Father doesn't want the son to do anything radical or enthusiastic. He doesn't want his son to call into question any of the family beliefs. He doesn't want the son to challenge any of the things in the home in which he was raised or reared. It's that kind of setting then that the Lord is intent to divide the son from the father. To sever a daughter from the influences of her mother. What dads are communicating to their sons is all important and life shaping into their lives. And how many mothers are doing the right things for their daughters' souls? And are we all as parents encouraging our children and even fostering them to be absolutely sold out in wholehearted Christians for Jesus Christ? Because that's exactly what it takes to be a real Christian. You can't be a Christian in word and name only. And the parents will not allow their children to be wholehearted, sold out for Jesus Christ, it is Christ's intentions to sever that child from those parents. And that sounds kind of harsh and extreme. But this is sometimes what it takes to save souls and grow God's kingdom. He would rather sever the soul from his earthly parents than to leave him in a compromised position where they will never give their wholehearted allegiance to Jesus Christ and perish in hell for all of eternity. Charles Simeon is an old dead Puritan 
that has blessed my heart and encouraged my life in very difficult times of ministry. Even today, his life ministers to mine. I remember going through a hard time one time in the ministry and went and talked to an old pastor who turned around and reached in a big old box. And in that big old box, he had nothing but a single message that John Piper gave on the life of Charles Simeon, whose title was, Men, We Must Not Mind a Little Suffering. I commend it to you. Simeon grew up in a nominal Christian home in England. And in his day, it was required by law for everyone to be baptized into the Church of England. When he was 19, he went off to Cambridge University and began college there. I think, I think he went to Emmanuel College at the University of Cambridge. And that Cambridge, the entire place, was a, a place that was destitute of evangelical Christian faith. As he entered college, he, told that, he was told that he would be now coming to the communion table. He had enough knowledge to, to, in him to, to fear that. He knew that he had to be worthy and rightfully come to the table. And so fear began to come over his heart and he began searching his heart. And he began to read a few books and tried repenting uh, to try to clean himself up and make himself better to be fit to come to his first communion he had no mother to nurture him. His father was an unbeliever, and it would be three years before he came into contact with the first Christian in Cambridge, in all of Cambridge. He was reading in one of those books about Jews putting their hands on sacrificial animals and how this pictured the transfer of the sinner's sins into another, and this light bulb went off in his head when he saw that his sins could be transferred to another. Here are those own words that he expressed in that week's journey of Passion Week that was coming up to, toward Easter where he would have communion. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus and on Wednesday began to have hope of mercy. On the Thursday, that hope increased and on the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on Sunday morning, Easter Day, April 4th, I awoke early with those words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. Simeon gave himself entirely to the Lord. He didn't know a single Christian in all of Cambridge for over three years. For three years, he personally read the scriptures and prayed and asked God that he might find another Christian. He also knew that his family was largely in his position, baptized but not saved. And so in this very earnest letter of which we do not yet, or we still do not, we do not have it remaining. But he pleads with his family about considering the possibilities that even though they're baptized, they may not genuinely be Christians and saved. He was the younger of three 
sons and his two older brothers explained now how that letter affected them. We laughed and looked serious alternately under the apprehension that you should lose that valuable gift called common sense, Charles. It is a natural for young people to be zealous in anything new, and therefore I trust in the common sense, common course of things that your zeal will slacken a little. His brothers laughed at him. Those interpreted to be too zealous or too fanatical are often resisted and challenged by family. Even those who grow up in nominal Christian homes. By the way, there is no nominal in Christian. Christ comes to set everything right that is wrong. And he alters people's lives and radically alters people's lives to the extent that Apostle Paul would say those things that are in you are new in Christ. You're an entirely new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He turns them into radicals for time and eternity. And there's no question that those who are the closest to him will be adversely affected by that unless their hearts are also changed. See, this, this is not the common gospel message that we often hear today. Simeon once preached a message on this very passage and he explains why this division is so. He says, and I use his words, whenever the gospel works effectually on hearts, there is a visible and physical change because the person that obeys the gospel is turned from darkness to light and from Satan to God. This change cannot fail to attract the notice of others. They are reduced to two alternatives. Either they condemn the person who is changed or they acknowledge the necessity of a similar change in themselves. But not wishing to experience it in themselves, they embrace the other alternative and reprobate the change as enthusiastic and absurd. Now, if the person changed stands in any near relationship to them, like family, they feel his change even more acutely to be offensive because the odium attached to it is a measure upon themselves. And that self-condemnation can strangely feel that far more acutely and if the person had no connection with them whatsoever. Hence, parents and relatives are genuinely among the fiercest opposers of such a change, and a man's greatest foes are usually those of his own household. End of quote. Now, that being the case, that makes a lot of people hesitant in coming to Christ. This is... A variation of this is what I often call a friends and family hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is how we interpret the scripture. And when we look at the Bible and we begin to interpret a passage with the persuasive thoughts of those implications of what that passage will mean if I happen to obey it and follow the Lord in this way, what it will cost me, and then we steer away from the truth rather than embracing it, I call that the friends and family hermeneutic. That fear persuades us not to embrace it wholeheartedly. 
That is why so many Christians have trouble in their lives. They're more concerned with how they will be viewed or what the implications of this following will be or what their friends and family will think to me, of me if I take this stand or live out the way that the Bible actually says to live out their faith. And so many people are in bondage to falsehood because of this. But the Bible says if you know the truth, it is the truth that will set you free. Never be ashamed of the truth. Never be ashamed of the gospel. Never be ashamed of Jesus who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that sword of the Lord that he wields is his word. It's the very thing that he brings this creation into existence, his word. It's the very thing. He doesn't need a metallic sword. He has something that cuts far deeper than that between soul and spirit. And it's quick and living, even today and even right now. So the Lord goes on to make clear what those consequences are that he's talking about. By the way, Charles Simeon's two older brothers did come to the faith and bowed their knee to Jesus before they died. Verses 37 and 38, Jesus leaves no alternatives. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He tells us that his intention is that he will divide us from anything that opposes his reign in our lives because he cares for you and he longs for you and it's even bigger than you. It's about his kingdom. There's only two options that are available and the first option given to us in these two verses is this. Okay, first option. Option one. You can love your father and your mother more than Jesus. You can do that. Okay, option one. You can love your new bride more than Jesus. You can love your husband more than Jesus. You can love your brand new firstborn baby more than Jesus. You can love any other child more than Jesus. You, you've got that option. You can do that. But if you do, you are not worthy of Jesus. Simple. Okay? But it's your option. That is one option available to you. He who does not take up his cross, he who does not crucify himself is not worthy of Jesus. Because the background to all this is simply idolatry. And idolatry is anything that you love or anyone you love more than God. And Jesus is God. If anyone else has your loyalty in your heart over and above Jesus, you are not worthy to be his disciple. Period. That's the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what he calls you to do is give everything you have and everything that means anything to you except God himself. And you put it in that framework and he is ultimate and first and preeminent in your life. That's what he asks of you. That's what he demands of you if you're going to be a true disciple. And you will find that if you do, 
you're going to have more brothers and sisters and family and sons and daughters and material goods and spiritual goods than you ever thought possible. That is why the, the rich young ruler who walked away sad, walked away from the Lord who owns it all. So you've got that, you've got that choice. That's an option for you. Lawrence Chatterton, another one of those Puritans that you this morning are blessed from in perhaps ways that you know not of. He lived in England like Simeon. He also went off to Cambridge like Simeon as a young man in his 20s. Chatterton was one of those who had a major role in the translation of the King James Bible. One of the four men that appeared in Windsor Court and one of the ones who was put in charge over leading the translation of First Chronicles all the way through the Song of Solomon and he forms a team up of a few people and he was the senior leader of that particular team. And so when you come to the Psalms that are now most frequently read among Christians and devotionally utilized in spiritual writings, it was most likely him that penned those translated words from the Hebrew into the English of Psalm 23. That most of you could quote the entirety and almost all of you a portion of that psalm that you've grown to love. But that life as a useful disciple came at a very high cost. Chatterton was born into a staunchly Roman Catholic family. His father was a very wealthy businessman. And even though Roman Catholics speak the same Savior in the same devout terms, the teaching of the church misdirects the people of what is necessary to have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When his father learned of Lawrence's Conversion, he sent him a letter with a single shilling in it, which read this. Dear Lawrence, if you will renounce the new sect which you have joined, you may expect all the happiness which the care of an indulgent father can secure you. Otherwise, I enclose in this letter a shilling to buy a wallet with. Go and beg for your living. Farewell. End of quote. That was his father. Lawrence had to part with his family over the gospel. And that is the kind of division that Jesus is speaking of with the sword. Consider John Bunyan. He was given two options, stop preaching or go to jail. He had a wife and children at home. One of his children was a blind daughter. He wrote, when he thought of his blind daughter, Mary, of the possibility of going to jail. It made him feel like a man who was taking his two hands and pulling his whole house down around his ears. You know the story. He went to jail for 12 years. But he understood when we are faced with these kinds of situations, when it comes to decisions like these, that we have to love Jesus first and foremost. 
There will not only be opposition from loved ones, but the very fact that we may face consequences as it involves those loved ones is really pertinent and relevant to a Christian who is going to be worthy of being a true disciple. And the last verse now gives us that other option. We, we know option one. You can love all of those people more than you love Jesus, but you're not worthy of him. The only other option, and it is an option, is given to us there. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who loses his life for my sake. First option, you can love your family more than Jesus, but you're not worthy of him. But the second option here, and it shows us how serious this really is, it has to do with retaining or losing my life, my eternal life. See? He who preserves his life will lose it. He who seeks to gain those things that he is counting the cost of and and choosing option one, he's going to lose it. If you try to preserve your life in the face of opposition who would try to keep you from being a true disciple and being all out and all in for Jesus, you'll lose it. But on the other hand, if you're prepared to forfeit your physical life for Jesus' sake and all that that physical life contains... That will be the person who finds life both physically and spiritually. It is possible to preserve relationships, but to lose life eternally. Option one. But Jesus calls us to be all out and all in disciples, even if it means losing our family and our closest loved ones for that. And the reason the Lord is so dramatic about this is he says that he wields a sword is because it is a matter of life and death, eternally so. Jesus draws a line in the sand. Much like we have in that picture when Joshua draws a line in the sand. Jesus draws a line in the sand and he demands people take a side. Take a side. There's no fence riders. There's no half-hearted. You're either all in or you're all out. And because he really loves people and he really loves their souls, he will take a sword and he will sever people, even from their own households if necessary, in order to make a disciple and to keep them from being persuaded otherwise. The Lord himself had to enter into a gruesome battle with evil to win a victory for your soul. It was a bloody battle. He shed his own blood. He knows the wrath of men, and he knows the forsakenness even of his own father, not for his sake, but for yours. He knows this division. And to be his disciples, you must enter into that battle which cost him everything, and it will demand everything of you, including your closest loved one. But he has promised, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or or, or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. 
Folks, the gospel is the greatest news we have ever heard in our lives. It's the greatest thing that has ever happened to this earth. It is adjusting every realm of society and bringing it into conformity with the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. And he is going to have his kingdom reign and rule. And we're not going to thwart his hand and we're not going to be his counselor. But we can bow our knee and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you paid a very high price for following Jesus. Some of you know personally this kind of persecution and being an all-out Christian and following what Christ says, what it means with family members who are still unsaved and who snarl and snicker and, and laugh at you, who think you're ridiculous, who think you're absurd, who think you're dramatic and, and, and radically um, weird. But that's the cost. That's what Jesus asked us to do. Be willing to do that. You have to love Jesus more than anything else. And you'll find, because God is the source of the relationship, of every relationship that we have, when we love Jesus more, you're going to find that you have greater love for the spouse and greater love for the children and greater love for all those around you. You're going to find that our bent is toward God. We're going to embrace him and what he loves and the things that he hates, we hate. And we're going to find that we come into conformity with something that is quite new and quite unusual, quite radical, and quite good. The gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Father, in the context in which we've lived where we have heard that you can easily believe and just go right on about our life with nothing changed, and so much of the gospel that is preached as gospel from pulpits today, which is not gospel but perversions of it, where people give themselves to it casually, and flippantly, and find themselves waking up in eternity, crying out, Lord, Lord, have we not done this, and have we not, not done that? And to hear those sobering words, depart from me, I never knew you. We pray that would not be true of anyone here this morning. And if there is one here that does not know Christ, really, truly, that who, who has had other loves in his or her life that has far outweighed their love for you. We pray that today this would be a time of squaring us up, aligning our hearts, that your spirit would work in us to give us the greatest love of all, our first love for the Lord Jesus himself, and that you would bring us into conformity with that, with all of our life, physical, spiritual, and all of our being. And where we have fallen short and slack in that commitment to you, which we fall short every day, we pray that this day would be a time that you would renew us and strengthen us with being all out and all in for Jesus. That we would be of that radical sort of which is worthy of Christ and not of the half-hearted half sort that wants to preserve everything in our way and on our terms, who is not worthy to be Jesus' disciple. Lord, I pray for those who have problems in trusting you today, that the Spirit of God would relax their spirit and that they might be comforted knowing that if they know the truth, which is before us, then the truth will set them free. You would dispel any fear with faith, any discouragement with courage, and that you would dispel any flesh with your spirit. And so we ask that you would apply the work 
of the gospel to each one of us today, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ and to his glory and for the good and advancement of your kingdom. For we pray it in his name and for his glorious sake. Amen.